everybody, welcome to RUF. Um, if this is your first time here, uh, warm welcome, and uh, thank you, Ben, for joining us from 1991 tonight. <laughs> it's like, that looks so familiar. It's like, oh yeah, my childhood. That's when people had haircuts like that and played the harmonica while playing guitar. It's awesome. Um, so really, my name's John. I'm the campus minister here with RUF. Um, glad to have you all with us. And... Glad you're here, as um, Luis and Grace said, um, we're glad that you're here. RUF, uh, what this is, what you've just walked into, we're, we're a campus ministry. Um, this isn't a Christian club, you don't have to believe anything to belong here. Um, and RUF, we believe that you are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, uh, but also that you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And so what we're going to do to now, and what we do every week, is we read the Bible together, um, and we ask some questions. We ask, what does it mean? What could it have to say to our lives? And um, what we did last week, and what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks, is looking at the book of Jonah together. And last week, as we read the first couple verses of Jonah, we saw that uh, Jonah, this book, is designed to be both a mirror and a window for us. Um, it's a mirror to show us ourselves, to show us our sin, and it's a window, a window that we might see the compassion of God. And the subject of Jonah is sin and grace. It's our sin and God's grace. And sin, simply put, is our running away from God. And grace is God running towards us, chasing us down, hunting us down in love, intercepting our self-destructive behavior. Sin is our running away, and grace is God running after us, hunting us down, chasing us down, intercepting our self-destructive behavior. And there are lots of places in the Bible that deal with these themes of sin and grace, but Jonah um, does it concretely. It actually gives us a story that shows us um, these realities. And um, what, it show, what Jonah does show us is it shows us that until you know that you run from him, until you know that you run from God, you cannot know him or find him. Something we saw last week as we read this together, that the first step of knowing God is the first step to finding God is to personally to admit that you run from him. To see yourself in the mirror of the Bible. To see yourself not just as a troubled person or a hurting person or a self-sufficient person or even as a successful person, but first to see yourself as a fugitive. And until you acknowledge that you do run from him, you will never find him. And I challenge any of us who don't think like that, that to perhaps begin thinking like that. To begin thinking that the only way to know God is to first know that you run from him. The only way to know God in his grace is to first know my sin. And if you don't think this way, just a question for you. Maybe um, this is the reason that God is just a word to you or he's just a, a concept or a thought or an idea to you, um, but not a person. The reason that God might not be real to you is because he's just an idea and he's not a person. So last week as we read this, we read the first four verses of Jonah and we saw in Jonah's running, we saw not only do we need to know that we run from God, um, or we need to know that we are ones who run from God to find him, um, but we also need to know how we run from God if we're ever going to grow personally. And each of us have unique ways of running and hiding from God, and we can't grow until we know what these are. And so the story of Jonah, what we'll continue to see is it's a story of sin of grace, a story of sin of running and chasing. Now just to recap where we are, the first four verses um, Jonah is a, is a man, he was a prophet in Israel in uh, the 8th century BC, and God speaks to him and tells him to go preach against Nineveh. And Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians was, was the largest empire of the world at that time, 
and Nineveh was its capital. So this was not only um, the greatest power in the world, but it was also Israel's enemy. And uh, on top of that, they didn't worship God. So to, to Jonah, this was being told to go to not only his enemies, but outsiders. And what um, God says to Jonah, he says, go to him, go preach to them, call them to repent of their sin and receive my grace. And Jonah doesn't do this. Instead of going and preaching uh, the gospel to them, instead he turns and he runs. He goes to the, a port city, Joppa. He gets on a boat and he goes as far away as absolutely possible. He goes to Tarshish, which is in modern day Spain. So instead of going, I guess your direction, instead of, of going east to Assyria, he goes the exact opposite direction, literally to the ends of the earth, to Spain, which would have been the ends of the earth um, at that time, into the Mediterranean Sea. He goes as far away as absolutely possible, disobeys God and runs away from him. And he's on this ship with these sailors, and God sends a storm. And that's where we are tonight. So I'm going to read this for us. It's printed on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along. We're going to read um, the rest of Jonah chapter 1. This is God's word for us tonight. Um, It is completely true, and he gives it to us in love. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find who is responsible for this calamity. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Now the sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come up up upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they couldn't, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. So what we see in this, um, in verse 5, we are introduced to these sailors. All right? These sailors are taking the ship from Joppa to Tarshish, and they agree to take on board this guy who pays his fare, goes down into the hold of the ship, and falls asleep. Right? And this huge storm comes on the ship. We're in the Mediterranean Sea. These guys are sailors. They know the waters. They know this voyage. It's a long voyage. And such a huge storm comes on, up, a hurricane comes up upon them, that the ship actually threatens to break up. It's creaking, it's making noises, it's getting tossed about the waves, and we learn that the sailors are afraid. They're afraid, they're scared, and they cry out to their own gods. They throw all the cargo overboard, it's this last-ditch effort, everything is falling apart. And they go down, they find Jonah in the cargo hold, 
And they wake him up. What are you doing? Get up. Call out to your God. Maybe he'll hear us. Our gods aren't hearing us. Maybe your God will hear us and we won't die. What's happening here is the sailors are showing us that everyone is religious. Everyone's religious. And all religions are religions of fear. What do I mean when I say this? Well, when a storm hits, what do you do? When a storm hits you in your life, what do you do? Well, you call out to your God. A question I hear from from y'all often is, why is it that I only pray when things are falling apart? Or why is it that I only am curious about God when I'm scared? I heard a story of a pastor who, um, he was was in bed and he got a call at 2 a.m. from a hospital. And they said, hey, there's a man here who's desperate to talk to you. So he gets up at 2 a.m., gets dressed, drives to the hospital. And when he gets there, um, the man sees him. He's a little embarrassed. He goes, oh, never mind. I don't, I don't need you anymore. Um, and the guy's like, okay. He's like, yeah, I don't need to talk about God anymore. Everything's, everything's fine now. And it turns out that this doctor had shown the man the wrong x-rays. And so he'd gotten these x-rays and thought that he was terminally ill. And so he immediately reached out, I need a pastor. I need to talk to someone about God. And then he learned, oh, wait, those aren't my x-rays. I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, don't need God right now. Right? And um, we do this. Lots of people say that they're not religious, but we're all religious. Maybe you don't believe me, but buried deep inside all of our souls is our religion. And our default religion is a religion of fear. Right? Fear of not measuring up. Fear of disappointing your parents. Fear of losing the girl. Fear of not getting the guy. Fear of being found out as a fraud. Fear of not succeeding. Fear of not getting that internship. Fear of not getting the grades and getting into that grad program. Fear of death. Fear of insignificance. Fear of failure. Now, why am I saying that these are religions? Right? You're like, these are just things we're scared of. These aren't religions. Why am I saying these things are religions? It's because when these fears emerge, what do we do? When they come to the surface, what do we do? Well, we cry out, right? We cry out to God. It's not that we become religious, but it reveals that we've been religious all along. We just haven't acknowledged it. In Romans 1, um, the Apostle Paul writes that all of us have this knowledge of God in us, but we suppress this knowledge. We bury it deep down inside, and we try to hold it down like holding a beach ball underwater in the pool. And it always pops up. It always emerges. It always comes up in our fears. And that's when we cry out to God. And that's what we see in these sailors, that their religion comes out as they cry out to their gods as the storm threatens to kill them. And in their fear, in their terror, they try to figure out whose fault this is. So they cast lots. Whose fault is this? Who do we blame? Whose fault is it that the sea is raging? They know that they must blame someone. They're asking the question, why is this bad thing happening? And why is it happening to me? Why is this bad thing happening to me? Now, this is a question that we all will ask at some point in our lives, if you haven't asked it already. And there's a famous book written about this question. It's called, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Um, And one commentator says this. He says that this book, in its very title, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? In its very title, it commits the logical fallacy of what is called begging the question. So what is begging the question? Begging the question is to assume the very premise that you say you're going to prove. So the title of this book assumes that life is unfair because some of us are good people and we deserve a wonderful life. Years ago, a bunch of disciples came to Jesus, and they asked this same question. This is recorded in Luke chapter 13. And they say to Jesus, Jesus, why did the Tower of Siloam fall on these people? Were they worse sinners than others? So we know nothing about the event of this tower. We don't have any records of it. 
Um, all we know is that it fell and it collapsed on some people. And this is the sort of thing that we read about a lot in the news, right? Some sort of tragedy that's horrible that has innocent victims. And Jesus' response to their question, their question, were they worse sinners than others? Jesus says, no, but repent or you will die too. Jesus is saying, my dear friends, please do not be so arrogant as to assume that people with more tragedy in their lives are worse people than you. And friends, no one gets what they deserve. Right? Think of this. God has given you all. He's given all of you your lives. He's created you. He supports you at every moment. And you owe him every ounce of your love, every ounce of your allegiance, every ounce of your glory. And look how we live towards him. Right? You may acknowledge him, but in the actual day-to-day way you go about running your own life is that you run your own life. You don't give him lordship. You don't give him that much love, if at all. Instead, what you do is you make all your decisions hinge on your joy, right? hinge on your satisfaction, your own pleasure, your own glory. And if God gave us what we deserve for how we treat him and how we treat each other, we would be wiped out in the blink of an eye. If God gave us what we deserve, the human race would be obliterated. But praise God that he's not like that. Praise God that he is a merciful God, that he won't give you what you deserve. He never gives anyone what they deserve. He always gives them better. Jesus says, repent, lest you too perish. And this is so practical for us. Do you see this? Like, of course, things happen to us that we don't deserve in the short run. But in the long run, no one gets what they deserve. So the question, why do good things happen to bad people, is the wrong question. It's not, why does God give us so much suffering in the world? The right question, the question we should ask is, why does God give so much beauty and so much life and light and joy, so much to enjoy? That's the real logical problem. You see this? The real logical problem is, why are we so blessed? And the logical problem is solved when we say that it's because God is a merciful God. And until you get your own understanding of this, until you wrestle this down for yourselves, your life and the world for you will be an incredibly disappointing place. If a storm comes into your life, if something horrible comes into your life, Jesus is saying to you, my friends, a tower has fallen on you. Now, is he punishing you for your sins? Are you worse than others for what you've done? No. If God punished us for our sins, we'd all be gone. Instead, what he's doing, the tower has fallen on you and the pain is in your life because God has a purpose for it. And God's saying, trust me. Trust him with this. Trust him. Go to him and you will grow. But don't demand a wonderful life. Praise God that he will never give you what you deserve. So let's get back to Jonah. So the the sailors cast lots. The lot falls on Jonah. Jonah. And they interrogate him, right? This guy who was sleeping in the bottom of the boat. They say, whose fault is this storm? What is your occupation? It's like, why are you on this ship? What is your country? Who are your people? And then we see Jonah's response. Look at verse 9 with me. Look at this. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. And what we see in Jonah's response is that he has had a change. Something has changed in Jonah. Now, if you remember last week... um, The first four verses, Jonah is laughable. He's a prophet of the Lord, and he runs away from God's presence. He runs away from God's command. He runs away from God's compassion. But here we see a change. Something has changed in Jonah. Instead of running from God and from God's mission of grace, he stands up and he tells the sailors who he is and who is causing the storm. And then the sailors respond. They say, what should we do to you? 
How do we pacify your God? Because he is going to kill us if we don't do something. They're asking Jonah, how, how can we be saved? And Jonah's response is, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down. I know that it's my fault that the, sea has, the storm has come upon you. What Jonah's doing is he's acknowledging that his storm has endangered everyone in the boat. Jonah's disobedience, Jonah's sin, his running from God has not just endangered the lives of the men in the boat, but any boats that were on the sea that day. And Jonah owns it. He owns the the wake of his own destruction. He says, pick me up, throw me into the sea. He's not saying sacrifice me. He's not asking the men to kill him. He's not asking for them to commit assisted suicide. He's saying, throw me into the compassion of God. Give me over to God and he will calm his storm. Something has happened to Jonah. The first three verses, he's running away from God. And here at the end of the chapter, he's asking to be thrown into God's storm. So what's going on? What has changed in Jonah? Well, simply, he's repented. He's seeing that a tower has fallen on him, and he's turning from thinking about himself, thinking about his safety, his security, his reputation, his image, even his sin. And he turns his thoughts, he turns his mind, he turns his heart to God. And the lesson for us in this is like Jonah, um, to admit your sin. And when you admit your sin, you will see God's grace everywhere. But if you hold on to an unrealistic notion of your rights, if you go through life and like you're entitled to anything, then you will end up living a hard and bitter life. Because I know this from my own life. I, I often feel deeply entitled. I think I deserve so much. And when I cling to this, my heart grows hard and bitter. And I begin to despise the good things that God has given me. I long for things that I think I deserve, that I think I have a right to. And I get harder and more bitter until I repent. And here we see Jonah's repentance. Jonah says, it's my fault. He stands up. He takes responsibility. And we begin to see what repentance is. And it's, it's really simple. There's a great 19th century Catholic writer, a guy named G.K. Chesterton. And there's a story about him that in his life, a London paper um, wrote the question, what is wrong with the world? And uh, people wrote in answers, like letter to the editor answers. And this was Chesterton's response. He wrote, dear sir, or dear sirs, in answer to your question, what is wrong with the world? I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. And that's what Jonah's doing here. He's simply standing up and taking responsibility, saying, I am, it's my fault. And look at Jonah. Like, Jonah doesn't talk about himself at all. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, I'm a Hebrew who worships the God who made the sea and the land. Look at what Jonah does. He takes his mind off his problems, off of his troubles, and he lifts his eyes to God. He gets his mind off of his sins, and he begins to look at God. Listen to, uh, listen to one pastor talk about this, and he says that in this, Jonah stops thinking about himself, and he begins to think about God. Jonah says, my God is the God of heaven and earth. Right? He begins to think about God's greatness, thinking, how can I ever be so stupid to think that I could run away from the creator of heaven and earth? And then he thinks, I'm a Hebrew. I'm one of those people who has been freed from captivity. People who were enslaved and then we've been liberated to represent God before the nations. And I've hidden from these sailors. I've run away from the Ninevites. I've hidden God's glory and his grace. I mean, do you all see what Jonah is doing? 
He's finally getting his mind off of himself. This is repentance. Getting his mind off of himself and beginning to think about something bigger than himself. Bigger than his problems. Example of this. If I hold this piece of paper really close to my face, I can't see the words. Right? I can't see the words on this paper. It has to be really close. Um, the only way I can read the words is if I hold it. I'm not that blind. If I hold it further away from my face. Right? Your parents are probably out here by now. But I hold it a little further away from my face. And the, and the, and the same is true with our problems. And our reputations and our goals and our agendas and our hurts and our feelings. When they're big to us, we can't see them for what they are. But when we look at God for who he is, then we're able to see things as they should be. And y'all, I need to do this every day. I need, I need to take time to look at God. And every time I look at him in his word long enough, I begin to, see what, I begin to love what he loves and see what he sees. And just for a bit, I begin to laugh at myself. My bitterness dissolves into humility. My heart melts into joy. Um, this was, it's funny, I was giving the kids a bath tonight before coming here. And um, I was hard and bitter. And Leo, my six-year-old, turns to me and says, Dad, why are you not any fun? Yeah, I know, right? It's like daggers. And I realized this, what I'm just saying to you guys right now, that um, I was anxious about the sermon. I was thinking through things, and I was taking myself way too seriously, thinking that I was way too important. And my children who were splashing in the bath and having so much fun called me out on it. Why aren't you having fun? We're, you know, it's bath time with the kids. Um, this is what happens, right? When we take ourselves too seriously, we become bitter and hard, and no one wants to be around us. But when we begin to look at God for who he is and we see ourselves as we actually are, then we actually melt and can laugh at ourselves. And things begin to get small again because God gets big again. So finally, Jonah says to the sailors, the only way you'll be saved is if you throw me into the sea. Now Jonah has stopped running. He's stopped cowering in fear. He has this calm courage. He has a clear mind. And when they throw him into the sea, he finds grace. Because under the water, there's love. God put a provision in the storm to save Jonah. He put the fish in the sea to save Jonah. And it wasn't until Jonah finally said yes. He said, I give myself for you. I give myself to you. God, you do whatever is fair and right. And then what happens? Well, whenever you obey God in dark times... And it looks like obeying, obeying him will lead to nowhere. And it looks like obeying him will lead to a dead end or even death like Jonah. You'll find under the waves are God's gracious provision. I mean, it happened to Jesus who gave himself up to be destroyed on the cross. And he found provision. And in closing, I just have a couple of applications for us to think about. So if you're here tonight and you're a Christian and you're fearful, this passage has something to say to you. I mean, look at how Jonah names his God in the midst of the storm. In 1 Peter 3, we're told as Christians to be ready to give reason for the hope that is within us as Christians. We're told to simply say the name of God in the midst of our storms and other people's storms. To say, Jesus is my hope. And God works powerfully and mysteriously by his word. All right, we see that Jonah's confession is simple. And yet through it, God draws forth faith from the lips of these sailors. What this means for you is this means that the mission field for you is not over there somewhere. 
Not some point in the distance that you have to walk towards blindfolded. But God puts people in your life on purpose. When Jonah gets on the boat, he lays down and goes to sleep. Why? Because he thinks, I'm not, on, I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm not on duty. He thought the mission field was over there somewhere. Um, in my early 20s, I was on staff with a Christian ministry in Richmond, Virginia, and uh, was hanging out with this high school boy named Clark. And we're having lunch, and he says to me, John, why do you have so much joy? Now, I'm a Christian in full-time Christian ministry. Remember that. Um, Why do you have so much joy? And my response is, I don't know. I guess I'm just a joyful guy. Like, Like, in the midst of Clark's storm of fear and doubt, he asked me who my God was, and I was scared and oblivious and totally missed out. I totally missed out. Ellis told me this story. She said um, her senior year, she was, or whenever, it wasn't senior year? Senior year. She's having a gross semester in college where nothing went school, and school-wise went well. She felt purposeless. And so her daily prayer became, Jesus, use me in your kingdom building today. She said she had a financial analysis class and sat next to this friend who'd been dabbling in church and dabbling in RUF. And she had lots of questions and started asking Ellis these questions during class. And it turns out that this friend, halfway through the semester, began to see herself as one who runs from God and receive Christ as the one who runs towards her in love. She became a Christian that semester. And she attributes these conversations as one of the ways that Jesus reached her. So friends, my plea to you tonight, if you are a Christian, don't be like me. Be like Ellis. Be like Jonah. God has put every single person in your life on purpose. Every single one of your relationships has a redemptive purpose. Jonah was on this ship with these sailors, not some other ship. I mean, imagine these sailors after this, taking the name of God, which they learned from Jonah, and the story of his grace to the ends of the earth, to Tarshish. This is the mystery of God's plan, and you are invited into it. So when you're asked, what do you believe? Why do you believe it? Open your mouth. Tell them about the goodness of Jesus. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, and if you don't see yourself primarily as a fugitive from God who has received grace in Jesus Christ, if that's you and you're fearful, if you still live by a religion of fear like these sailors, um, I want you to look at what happens to the sailors when they meet Jonah. In this storm, they encounter God in his awesomeness, in his holiness, in his power. And in Jonah, they meet one who owns his sins, who has this humble confidence in the face of a hurricane to say, it's my fault. Throw me over. They see one who has peace, real peace, in the midst of a storm. And then Jonah is thrown overboard, and they see God's grace. That when one was thrown over for them, When this Hebrew, this one who worships the God of the heavens and sea, was thrown into the sea for them, this is the only way for the storm to be stilled, the only way for the sky to open up on them and for them to feel the warmth of the sunshine of God's love. The only way is for one to go into the storm of God's judgment for them. He has to go over for them. It was the only way. And that's what you have in Jesus. Jesus, who in his incarnation was born into this world. He came as a man. He got onto our boat, into our storm. Into our storm that was caused not by Jonah's running, but by ours. 
Jesus, who in his crucifixion, in his depth, in his death, he leapt into the eye of the storm. He was thrown into the sea. He took the full wrath that our sin deserves so that like the sailors, we could have nothing but sunshine. That eternal day of the warmth of our Father's smiles. Now, if you want this, if you want a relationship with God based not on fear, but on love, not on your merits, but on God's grace, look at Jonah. Look in the mirror and repent. And look out the window at God and see his grace and compassion. Look at the cross and see how Jesus leapt into the storm for you. And believe. See his death, his work as a work of love for you. That you might receive the peace of knowing God. I want to end with a, with a short story. Um, there's a woman named Sarah Edwards. She was the wife of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a great preacher and theologian. President of Princeton Seminary in the 18th century. Early half of the 18th century. And he died in his 50s. He signed up for a smallpox like vaccine and was infected by it, and he died. And when he died, Sarah, his wife, wrote a letter to their daughter and said this. She said, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. So where does she get this strength, this peace, this character, this sweetness? At a time like this, losing her husband at the bottom of her grief, somehow she knew who she was. Somehow she had real humility there. She knew that she was a creature and not the creator. Do you see that when Sarah Edwards said, I don't deserve the good things I've got, and God has a purpose in the storm that he sends. And therefore God, has my, God lives and he has my heart. Because of her repentance and her humility, there was a sweetness. She has this real positive force of character. This sweet, deep, wide spirit. She's not shallow. She's not bitter. So a question for you as you leave here tonight. Do you have that? Can you handle your storms that way? Friends, if we give ourselves to God, there is love waiting even under the angriest of waves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jonah and the story that you've preserved for us. And we thank you that in him we see both our sin and your grace. Lord, we thank you that you are a compassionate God. And I pray for my friends here tonight. I pray that you would um, help them and meet them where they are, that they might know you in your compassion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you all want to stand up, we're going to sing a couple more songs. One more song.